Let's put our minds together as one and remember those who have passed on to the sky world. Their life duties are complete. They are living peacefully in the sky world. In the sky world. My name is Natalie Evans, and you're listening to a special series from Some Kind of Brown called Red November. There's an epidemic in the indigenous communities that spurred a movement called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW. For the entire month of November, which is National Native American Heritage Month in the United States, my contributors and I will be talking about the loss of our sisters, the impact it continues to have on each of our lives, and how we are honoring the women, girls, and two-spirit people who have walked on by being visible and making sure that we are heard. Our hope is that the fire in our hearts touches yours and the gaps between our communities can be bridged. Whether you are indigenous, multiracial like me, or not, thank you for being here and for listening. We are native. We've been here. We will not let our lost sisters and our own voices fade away. Welcome to the movement. Hi everyone, I just wanted to let you know that right after this episode goes live, I am going to release a statement of a missing woman who is related to Emily Washinez, who has been a part of this Red November project. I am going to release it again as a separate episode, and please share either the episode or the press release information that will be linked in the show notes of that episode. I would really, really appreciate it if you would check for that. It will go up after this episode. Amber Aganasagak Webb is our next guest, and she is doing a wonderful project surrounding MMIW. She is a Yupik woman who has created a massive traditional piece of clothing that she'll talk about later in the episode, and it has the portraits of missing and murdered indigenous women from the Alaskan area into Canada on it. She is getting to travel with this piece, and I think it brings a lot of healing to some of these families who just want to know someone sees and cares about their family member. She has such a kind and soothing soul, but don't let me tell you, I'll let you hear it for yourself. Hello everyone. I don't know how we did this, but it is the last week of Red November. We are by no means finished talking about this topic, but we are done with this first project after this episode. And to help me talk about the pivotal lost sister that birthed the MMIW movement as it is now, I have a special guest who's doing a very special project that we're going to talk about in the end. But would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Amber Webb. I'm a Chilkyung tribal member from Dillingham, Alaska. My Yupik name is Aranasarak, which means old woman or grandma. Aww. <laughs> Yeah, given to me by my auntie Dorothy Kupchayuk. I grew up in Bristol Bay in Anchorage. I have a background in art, but I've done a lot of different kinds of jobs. Naturally, sometimes our wee artists just kind of hop around sometimes until we find our landing <laughs> spot. Absolutely. 
the the life of an artist or the life of any kind of creative really <laughs> right but it makes the work better a lot of the time yeah learning a lot about yourself definitely that's the name of the game and it's definitely something that's happened for me through this project I started Red November because I couldn't justify not doing this project this year, even though I had some things going on in my personal life. And it just seemed to be at the right time, the right people agreed to speak, and all of the perspectives are really just making this a beautiful project. And I'm really grateful that you agreed to join us and add your perspective too. Thank you. I could definitely relate getting to that point where you just, you have to do it. That overlaps with how my project started because I, I woke up one morning and I just had to. Yeah, that's a, that's about what happened to me. I wasn't going to do it because I had a hysterectomy a week before I had to start working on the project. Oh, wow. And yeah, so, and I couldn't sleep one night because I was in pain and I out of nowhere, I was like, nope, I have to do it. And started working on it and then contacted all of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad that you did. And I think that every piece that each person does is vital. Right? We all we all have something to contribute to this movement. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially as Native women, this movement of advocating for ourselves and changing this reality is, it's always been led by Native women for Native women. For sure. Very matriarchal. I found through re my journey in reconnecting and getting close to the community around here, women are always pivotal to the culture. They're almost the bearers of cultural traditions. Everything passes through them. I don't know. I It's really edifying to see how important women are in the community. That's interesting that you mentioned that. I was just at a Native Wellness Institute training this week, and I kind of strong-armed my my husband into coming with me and we were on our way there and he said in the car, he said, I've heard this prophecy that Native women are going to lead the way to cultural revival all across, uh, all across Turtle Island. He said, I can see that you're a part of that and that your sister is a part of that. And my job is just to lend support to you and just stand by you. And I was really floored to hear him say that. And interestingly, that seems to be kind of a theme with the people I've talked to, the last episode with Emily, she said something at the end that really floored me. I just lost all of my words and that's how the episode ends. She said that she likes to think that maybe we're the generation our ancestors prayed for, the women who will be able to bring justice through talking about these things and also through reinvigorating a lot of cultural traditions. And especially in the area where you are, revitalizing those tattooing traditions. That's so important for the women. And I know that each tattoo stands for a different stage in life. And I think it's probably the most female celebrating thing that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because with the tattooing, the reason that I chose to use Sharpie and use dot work the way I have to draw the portraits is nodding at the healing practice of Mm. giving traditional tattoos you know with each dot you're healing yourself and that's really the, the entire project each each mark I made on that project was in keeping with that kind of prayer that's really beautiful yeah and so it's been a quite a journey <laughs> I'm sure I've seen a lot of women in various stages of getting their tattoos a couple people I follow get their birthing tattoos on their thighs and 
even though my bands and tribes don't really do tattooing, I can feel through what they say, like how exciting and how important it was to them. There is an aspect of healing. You're celebrating every moment of your life, every part of what it is to be a woman and marking it on your body. Yes, I think what I've heard some people say is that Yupik people, what they were trying to do was make themselves beautiful for the creator. And if you look at, in doing these portraits, if you look at uh, the way that shadows fall on people's faces, sometimes you can almost tell what region they must come from because of the way that their bone structure creates shadows. Like those lines fall in the natural spots that accentuate Mm -hmm. our cheekbones and our chins and our foreheads and the, the natural beauty of being Native women. I think it's really powerful owning your own natural beauty and not looking at yourself yeah. through the perspective of uh, Western beauty standards. There's so many layers to the tattooing and to all of the ways that women across the world are reclaiming their identities. It's very powerful. And to me, it's a very strange juxtaposition We have all of these revitalization of traditions and uplifting each other as women and celebrating what it is to be a woman in our communities. And then at the same time, we're under attack. Our communities are under attack. Yeah. The MMIW movement and Native Indigenous women are 10 times more likely than any other ethnic minority to face violence. It's a strange place to kind of be in the middle of. It is. You know, I've thought about that a lot, and there's two thoughts that I have. One, I think that just being a Native woman, the kind of spiritual power that we have in every single one of us, I think that challenges the teachings that white men get throughout their lives about how Mm -hmm. they should be given privilege. I feel like part of the reason that we are under attack is because I feel like some of those men and even sometimes our, some of our own men are so threatened by the reality of who we are when it doesn't align with some of the right. teachings that American society and Western society gives. We're so connected to our land and to our environment that you can't argue with that power. It's, it's there. It's unmistakable, you know? It's very strange, and I think it's very hard for people to kind of reconcile, especially people like me who grew up separated from the culture. I think there's sometimes a process of deprogramming that has to happen when you are connecting or reconnecting to your culture. You have to let go of those Western societal standards that look at women a certain way. You have to, like you said, challenge what it means to be beautiful and celebrate our look, the way our faces are shaped. You know, those kinds of things are not very typical Mm -hmm. for Western society. That's true. I I think even in places where people have grown up practicing cultural activities, I think we're all still reclaiming that. And I know there's a lot of forgiveness that goes along with that. I think, like I can say for myself, you know, and this story is similar to so many other people I know. My grandmother didn't teach her children to speak Yupik because Mm -hmm. she was punished so harshly in boarding school. So we lost that language in our family and we only have a few words that we use. And I'm still working on learning to speak Yupik, but a lot of my journey has been not only forgiving her, but really letting go of that anger 
at these systems that made my grandmother feel like she couldn't be herself, you know, so much that she changed who we became. And that's definitely been a challenge. I feel like you're right. We are the generation that our, our grandparents prayed for. And I've heard of a few people reclaiming language, like just going to school and doing an intense four-year language study to learn how to be fluent in their native languages. And I'm, I'm thinking about doing that too. <laughs> I've been looking for ways to try to learn. I have to decide if I want to learn both the Eastern dialect of the Cherokee language or the Choctaw language. I don't I don't know what I have to do with that. There are a lot of things I have to decide or see what I can do because I'm all the way up in Anishinaabe land, in Ojibwe uh, land. So, Well, you never know. Sometimes you're led places, so you may not actually have to decide. It might be decided for you. That's, that's true. I, <laughs> there are some things in life where I definitely feel that some things just happened when they needed to happen, when I was ready, I guess. Yep, Definitely. It's funny that you have that experience with your grandmother. You bring that up because I actually was talking to someone on a different podcast yesterday about forgiving my dad for his trauma Yes, and what he did to us because of his trauma. I'm mixed with black, like African slave black, and mm -hmm. he was born into a segregated Arkansas. He went through all of that violence. He had friends who were lynched. It's just not a good time. Right. And when he was growing up, it was very important to be anything other than Black or Native. He tried to assimilate as much as humanly possible. So some of that has kept us from actually, us kids, from actually being enrolled. We were supposed to get to be enrolled, but my dad applied to the wrong band and the information we don't have anymore. So I'm trying to track that down. But I had to forgive him for that because... I feel like I missed out on a lot, but I can understand when you're faced with so much violence, you kind of have to either assimilate or face that violence as well. Yep. What I keep coming back to for myself is when I start to feel some of the feelings that go along with processing that kind of history, you know, it always comes back to systems. And as we're talking about murdered and missing uh, Native women, those systems that did that to our families are still at work. Yes. And so even having laws passed, it, it's a start. But I truly believe that what we need to do is we need a formal acknowledgement that this issue is being caused directly by continuing genocide. Yes. And that we need the United States government to own the genocide that they committed because it's never really taught or talked about. It was the American Holocaust, you know, and it was the model for the Jewish Holocaust. And we don't have any museums commemorating that. Mm -hmm. We don't teach about it. So, of course, that violence is going to continue to carry over because we need systemic change and we yeah. need healing as an entire society. Well, between the blood quantum and the way that jurisdictions work where tribal police and the tribal courts cannot prosecute people from outside, those kinds of things all are yeah. and created to eliminate us yeah. for eventual like land rights and mineral rights. Yep. The U.S. never wanted to give away this land forever. And neither did our our ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they you know, a lot of those treaties were tricks. They were tricks to begin with. More true than can be said. 
Yes. And also up here, it's a little different because we don't have really reservations. We do have villages. So the way that things play out legally are a little different, but a lot of places do still have tribal police. We have state troopers that don't always show up in a timely manner to respond to violence when it occurs. Lovely. Yeah, and some communities don't even have a tribal police officer. They started a village public safety officer program, and they can't carry weapons, and they're pretty limited as to what they can legally do in communities. And I think one of the things that I see having you know, read so many cases up here and down in the lower states is that if it's a Native person that committed the crime, usually they'll be prosecuted in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. And if it's a white man and the woman is Native, it's clear that that prosecution happens a lot less. I mean, we're lucky if that even goes to court. Yeah, you're lucky if it even goes to court. There's a few cases that we just recently were in the media where they brought the guy in for the crime and everybody believes he did it and he won. He didn't get prosecuted. Lovely. Yeah, and that's common. And that there's a lot of the time what will happen is before it's even about prosecution, cases won't be investigated or they'll say no foul play suspected when a woman dies or mm -hmm. is found and if a woman is found at the end of a road and that's really far outside of her normal pattern of behavior, then they say there's no foul play suspected. That's kind of just like a slap in the face to her family. Yeah, that's something that has come up a few times in discussions in these conversations is that these cases are dismissed because they'll say the woman lived an at-risk lifestyle, they were drinking, they were on drugs. There's always an excuse for why they're not going to investigate quickly and why they close the cases so early. Yep. They just attribute it to any number of things. Right. And that's not reflective of the general reality. Certainly, there are cases where women who are struggling from trauma that's directly caused by colonization. Sure, some of those women do struggle with lifestyle issues, mm -hmm. but those women aren't killed because of their lifestyle issues. They're targeted because the government makes them vulnerable because people know that their deaths won't be investigated in the same way. But most of the cases are just women living their lives. And yeah. we have to keep reiterating that these crimes happen wherever Native women are. And it doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle you live. It could happen to you just because of how you look. Somebody was, I, I saw this um, meme on the internet recently where it said, the reason you struggle with self-care is because colonialism taught you to tolerate abuse. And that really resonated with me. And I think that we have to remember that so many of our sisters are conditioned to tolerate abuse from the time that they're very young because of the way that society, Western society, treats them. Of course, they get into bad situations because it that is pushed on them over and over again their whole lives. Right. How can you expect every single Native woman to be immune to that? I think that extends into the wider Native community as well because they've seen time and time again that the outside people are going to betray and go back on their word and violate treaties and not going to care when we have people who are missing. So sometimes I think there's a bit of 
almost resignation to the fact that this violence is going to happen. And I understand that, but I'm really glad that that's changing. Oh, me too. I think it's a lot of people, particularly up here where we live, and even down in the lower 48 too, we have these wide expanses of wild land that Mm -hmm. are not easy to search, you know? And most people I know, we all kind of understand that if something like that happened, we would have to be the ones that would search for each other. Yeah. And we are the ones who do that, whether it's a boating accident or somebody gets lost or somebody goes missing, someone's hurt them, we know we're going to have to search for them ourselves. We can look at how society in a Western sense neglects us, but then we can look at our traditional societies where we do have each other's backs and we do everything we can to try to locate our people when they go missing. Mm -hmm. And I think I prefer to look at that because it says a lot about the kind of community members that we are. I think it is such an indicator of strength that our Native communities can still rally in the face of years and years and years and years of maltreatment and still have that kind of solid communal idea, especially in the U.S. where it's very individualistic and some of that kind of sneaks into the culture sometimes. But Native communities are very communally centered. We heal as a community. We do everything as a community. And I think it shows a lot of strength and a lot of resilience that our Indigenous and Native communities will rally around each other. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, a part of each of us looking at how we've been colonized in our minds, each person that does that adds so much strength to their community and calls other people back. And I think part of the reason that we do have that uh, community orientation and that we practice it that way really comes back to the fact that Mm -hmm. our languages and our culture is all rooted in the land. I think the land carries our our culture. It like reminds us who we are when we, we sometimes start to forget, you know, And I feel like that having the energy of the land that keeps calling us back, that's what gives us our strength. Yeah, I can see that. There are a lot of things that are difficult. And I said this in the beginning with Agnaric. I think that when Hannah Harris, who we're going to talk about for a little bit, came along and what happened to her, people were just too tired of our sisters disappearing and the movement started in 2016. So we've been slowly gaining momentum, slowly standing up for ourselves and more and more people are joining, whether as reconnecting natives or even people on reservations, people from outside who can be allies. I think that the momentum that we have, it gives me a lot of hope that people are showing more and more interest. That makes sense. I definitely feel that kind of collective, like enough is enough feeling in a lot of different places in the country that I've been so far. I sometimes wonder, as we're talking about this, I I feel like the spirit of our women, particularly the ones who were taken that way, I feel like that's always calling to us. I feel like it's not an accident. And I don't know Hannah Harris's family. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel like the memory of who we are calls certain things into existence and probably maybe the fact that all of this is kind of beginning around her case really uh, says a lot about who she was. One of the things I noticed in doing these portraits is you really do feel uh, the energy of the women and each portrait feels very different. 
I think some of them are at peace, it seems like, and it seems like some of them are still fighting even after they've passed. You know, if if you're thinking in a spiritual sense, how our energy moves to the next place that it goes and comes back, the collective energy of all these women that have had their lives abruptly ended. Yeah. That's a lot of energy out in the universe. So it was inevitable that at some point we would come to a place where we would say no more now. I feel like they've been calling to us for a long time. You know, I'm not always very spiritual, but that's actually something that helped me make a decision to start this project. I felt like I would be ignoring the voices of the women and sisters that came before. I don't know how to explain it. It just felt like a fire in my heart. Yep, that's really similar to how I felt. But you know, I, I always have been really spiritual, so maybe I'm a little bit different in that sense. But I've been having these dreams about women at times for years now, and then finding out that my dreams were connected to somebody within the state. Wow who had passed and I found out afterwards, I feel like maybe I've been listening to that call for a very long time. And I I can see this project that I'm doing now, I can see how everything that I learned and everything that I was interested in leading up to now was all getting me ready to do this project. This is one of those projects that I don't think I'll do another project that's as important as this one in my life, you know? I can definitely empathize with that. Yeah, yeah. And it's been a completely life changing thing because all of those connections with people, you never think that you could be connected to that many people at once. So, can I tell you a story? Would that be okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, we were talking about Hannah Harris and how the idea that some of these women were calling us, you know, and I had been working on the project for a little while. Most of the front of the project was finished, and my sister kept telling me to go to Miami to this healthy relationships training with the Native Wellness Institute, and I was like, oh, I can't really afford it. It's probably not the best time to go. You know, I have a lot to do, and uh, long story short, somehow I ended up coming up with the funding to go to the training, and leading up to it, this photo kept popping up of this woman who was from Iowa, and I was like, I'm going to stay with Northern women because this is a book that I made and I was trying to do the project with women from the North and then try to collaborate with an artist in the Southern United States to make a new project for those women as well. Mm-hmm. But this woman kept showing up uh, on the internet and her picture kept popping up and finally I went to the training and I met her cousin at this training. Holy cow. Yeah, she gave me her picture and she said, can you put my cousin on your project? And it was the picture that had kept popping up. I don't know why that is making me tear up, but it did. (laughs) It it was really intense. And so then I met a few people at that training and as a result was asked to go to a one-day awareness conference and speak and bring my project. So I fly into Omaha and I thought, I'm so close to Rita's home. And I had met her cousin. And so I said, can I bring the project, you know, to to Tama? She was uh, Meskwaki from Tama. I say it wrong sometimes, but I'm up north. I'm sure they'll forgive mm-hmm. me. <laughs> but uh, I do my best to pronounce, but it's it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to know how to pronounce all the names. There's so many different ones. But so I went to Tema and I brought the project there. Yeah, and her cousin and some extended family 
cooked me corn soup and fry bread and we had this meal together and then her mom and her her kids and her uncles came and looked at the project and I, I met them, you know, talked with them for a little while and it was just this beautiful experience and I was meant to go there, but then even after that, so I leave and go back to Sioux City for the conference I was supposed to go to. And, you know, who was speaking at that conference was her brother. And her brother told this story of what happened to her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was really intense. And he spoke so beautifully. So that's one of the ways that these stories carry you places. And then that same trip to Miami, I met a woman that had been working with Tina Fontaine's family in Canada. And she walked up to the project and she saw Tina Fontaine's picture on the sleeve and, you know, came and talked to me afterward. And I don't know if you know who Tina Fontaine is. The name sounds very familiar. Tina Fontaine was a 15-year-old girl, I think, in Winnipeg. I think it was Winnipeg. She's a Canadian First Nations girl that had been in the foster care system. And they know who uh, took her life, but he was not brought to justice He got off on a technicality. Oh my goodness. Her case highlighted some really huge gaps in the foster care system and the fact that a lot of Native girls that are trafficked and then killed end up going through the foster care system first. And her case was very emotional. But her case sparked this whole movement in Canada. And there were protests. It was kind of like, I think, similar to Hannah Harris, where people mobilized around her case. That's exactly what I was going to say, that Hannah Harris, while she wasn't a teenager, it's kind of the same situation when she died. There is some justice. Luckily, her legacy is a piece of legislation that passed this year. So I am glad that there are people whose legacies are changing and the dialogue around what happened to them is changing because it's not fair to only depict someone as a tragedy or this this thing that happened to them because it doesn't say anything about them. But the community mobilizing around them and pushing things in legislation, the fact that they're doing that, that says more about the person. I think you mentioned that earlier. Yep. Hannah's act actually passed May 3rd of this year, and it requires Montana law enforcement to accept reports of missing persons without delay. We'll compile a complete and accurate record of information for cases that go unsolved after 30 days, including a photograph of the missing person. And there are a lot of other things it requires, but it's crazy to think that this wasn't something that was already put into place. Absolutely. I wish we didn't have to lose a sister to yep. make that kind of progress. Absolutely. And if you think about the historical context of all of this, it's been hundreds of years that things have been happening. Mm-hmm. We've lost too many of our, our people to this kind of violence. So there's, I think, a new precedent that has to be set. I feel like my goal as an artist and as a person advocating for Native women is that I want everyone to understand that we are the most sacred people and that if you harm a native woman you expect the full strength of the law to come down on you that's how protected i think we should be we need a complete shift from the current practices that are leading to genocide we should have the same level of protection as everyone else if someone who's native goes missing we should expect them to get the same kind of coverage as you know a a blonde white girl with blue eyes yep 
You know, it's interesting. There's a case here in Anchorage. I think it was in 2014, but it might have been in 2012. And her name was Samantha Koenig, and she was blonde and had blue eyes, and she looked white, but she was Inupiaq. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know she was Inupiaq because her case was all over the news when she went missing. And they solved her case. They found her relatively quickly, and they solved her case because it was prioritized. And it was treated very differently than a lot of the other cases that we see up here. But she was still affected by the same factors that affect all other mixed people and all other Native uh, people that are yeah. look all different ways. I definitely understand that. Yeah, so it was very different. But then you see some of our recent cases, Kathleen Henry and Veronica Abouchuk. And there was a bulletin that went out that they were missing and I didn't even catch it, and I'm looking for it. They had been missing for a while when it came to light that they had both been killed, and it really made me feel ashamed. Looking at the difference between those two cases, even just Native women that fit a certain appearance get more attention in the media than Native women who don't fit that yeah. physical appearance that white people want to look at, you know? It's very painful, and there are a lot of factors that go into it, and it's really hard at least for me, to not be angry sometimes at the way these things turn out. It's just not, I know it's kind of childish to say, but it's just not fair. I, I agree with you. And I think it isn't childish to say that. I think it's, um, that's just what we're dealing with. You know, these some of these things that we're talking about are pretty basic. The basic kinds of respect that we do learn yeah. when we're children. And that should carry over into adulthood and they don't. <laughs> I'm sorry about, about that. You are totally fine. I'm not bothered by it. So I think your project, what you're doing is really important. And it does more than is happening as far as the media goes. Can you explain a little bit uh, what your project is? I will post pictures and stuff like that. But I just want to hear from your mouth what your project is and kind of how that's been healing for you. So I started out with a prototype that was about eight feet tall, and it had, I think, 47 portraits drawn in Sharpie of Alaska Native women. And then I got a grant to do a larger project. And so that one is about 12 feet tall, and it has, it should have 200 portraits when it's done or more. I'm not sure exactly how many there will be, but right now it has over 150 and we're talking about portraits of women on a traditional outfit. Yes, it's a 13-foot tall Gus book, and it's white, and it has portraits of murdered and missing Native women from Alaska, Canada, and primarily the border states along the Canadian border, but also as far south as Iowa and Utah. And part of the project has been collecting as much data as I can and sharing that data with the Sovereign Bodies Institute. Oh, wow. And the Sovereign Bodies Institute gave me 300 names. And I haven't stuck super closely to that list, but I've used that list as a guide. When I run out of names that people are sending to me, then I use that list. And I probably won't get everyone on the list that she sent me, but I really appreciate her willingness to share that information with me. And I try to be really careful who I share that information with. I think it's really important work and the piece is really, really powerful. I've seen pictures of it on your Instagram. You know, all of us are contributing to this movement in the ways we can with our different strengths. You are putting these portraits. Can you please say it again? <laughs> on this Gusbuck? Gusbuck? 
You can say it that way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yupik is a difficult language. I, I don't even really probably say it right. <laughs> I do my best. I try. <laughs> right. That's good. Which is why I don't call Agnog Tristan because I, I feel like they deserve the respect of me at least trying to pronounce her name. That's admirable. I appreciate that too. I noticed that you were saying it and I think that's good. One day I'll sound like a second grader instead of a kindergartner, but <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel too often. But yeah, I I love your project and everything behind it. And it makes me feel grateful actually to be able to talk to you and share that with more people because I have a lot of non-native people who listen. Right now they're kind of in shock about what's going on. I actually have people who told me they didn't even know that it was Native American Heritage Month, which blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, so there are all sorts of people who are listening to this series, and it's so beautiful to see that out of something so fundamentally disgusting, the lack of honoring of our people in like the most basic ways, that we can turn it into beauty and strength and motivation to make things better. I think that really a testament to who we all are. There are so many distinct cultures on Turtle Island that are different, but we all carry that same honor and respect for each other. And I feel like we all carry that same kind of spiritual and creative ability to envision a different narrative and to always go back to honoring life. Yeah. If we continue having conversations like these, or I still, I continue to have conversations like these, and Agnog still continues to do her activism and the work she's doing with her fellowship, if Diana continues to be a very visible representation for our South American sisters, and you with your work traveling and showing people in a very moving way these lost sisters up in these areas, I think things things will change because they have to. And there are people talking about it and we're, yep. we're going to basically just be putting it in their face. Yep. Soon people won't be able to ignore what's happening or at least be ignorant because so there are some people who just don't know, to be fair. Yeah, there are. And, and, you know, I think that's why the project and similar projects are so effective because a lot of people, if they do know, they do want to do something about it or they at least want it to be fixed but if they don't know it's even happening then they're not going to care about it you know right well i just really want to thank you for being on here and for sharing your work and your experience with me yeah thanks for having me i'm really grateful for what you're doing with your podcast and i'm really glad that it finally worked out after several failed attempts <laughs> <laughs> and i hope that um i i'm able to meet you in person someday you never know what the future holds. Yep, yep and that would be awesome. It may, it may happen. Let's put our minds together as one and remember those who have passed on to the sky world. Their life so this ended up being a shorter episode because we did have some technical problems and some cute little ones that needed attention, but I am content with this episode. As far as this series, I cannot be more grateful for all of you people who have joined me on this journey and for Aganasaguk, Aganarek, and Diana for making this possible. This is the end of this year's Red November series, but I really don't want this to be the end of the conversation. 
Not only do I promise to continue to talk about native issues and topics outside of this month, but I have something like this in the works. To help that along, please let me know if this series has touched you and you would like to see more content like this. You can find Aganasaguk or Amber at I-M-A-R-P-I-K-I-N-K on Instagram to follow her project. Please also check out our special edition merchandise through the link in my link tree in show notes. 80% of the proceeds will be donated to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Aganarik has put their heart into this design and it will only be available for a few more days. That being said, there will be Black Friday sales on TeePublic, I believe, so if you haven't snatched up the merch, you might want to snatch it up now. Remember, we only have a few more days to raise money for the Coalition with this merch. Aganarik's information can be found on the website as well as everyone else who is in this project. Again, I I don't know how this project happens. I don't know, I just put it out there and so many people have given me more back and it's because of you and for you that I produced this and there's no other way that this would have happened without a single one of you. If you're new, welcome to the brownish or brownie family. That's a poll that's going to happen in the future. You can find me at some kind of brown on all social media platforms. Thank you again to the amazing Teresa Bearfox for the use of her song Skyworld, and I will see you next week with some more Shades of Brown. Ooh, it's been a while since I've said that.